This is the Breaking Down Incident Response Podcast. We are your hosts, Brian Betcher. And I am Michael Goff. And we're back. Back for another awesome episode. What's going on, man? Well, apparently it's a new year. Ah, yes, the new year. Today, let me go over our show summary. We don't need any guests, do we, for this topic? No, not this time. We, we might have to get back into this later, but uh, this this originated from a Twitter conversation, so this is one of those conversations on the side we had that we had to make a podcast out of. All right, so do have a sponsor, but we were we are looking for another sponsor. So if you'd like to sponsor for the year or just one show, um, that would be uh, awesome. Just contact us. And uh, if you don't know how to contact us, then you probably shouldn't be in this industry, I guess. <laughs> but anyway, uh, we got a few newsworthy items and uh, malware of the month. Yeah, that's a pretty good sample. And uh, where's it going in your training? Uh, not this one. Next month's will go into the training for sure. I, oh, think, I okay. think I wrote that down, didn't I? I'll have to take that out of there because yeah. that's for next month. Okay. So anyway... We were talking about that like yesterday. Yeah. We have some websites to share and some uh, tool-worthy items, right? And then on to our topic of the day, which is our topic is to agent or not to agent. Would that be a secret agent? A lot agent? of conversations we had about that. <laughs> secret <Tons>. agent? No? <laughs> Lots of times I disagreed with you, but I think we kind of reached a consensus there at the end. We like to um, argue a lot. No, we don't argue. We we do we do uh, intellectual discussions, heated intellectual discussions. I don't think they're heated. (laughs) Debate at best. uh, We we make a lot of progress when we uh, disagree. That's what I like to think. So um, I don't disagree with anybody. Speaking of sponsors, now on to our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Humio, a high-performance log management and analysis tool delivering real-time performance for system monitoring and investigation. By allowing users to ingest huge amounts of data on a single node for ad hoc queries and search without doing any indexing, Humio enables its users to monitor a system for errors, user volumes, transactions, registrations, or search on multiple parameters. Humio is available in both on-premise and cloud versions. Start a free trial of Humio today at humio.com. That is H-U-M-I-O dot com. This podcast is also brought to you by LogMD, the log and malicious discovery tool for Windows-based systems for IT, InfoSec, IR, and forensics professionals. It helps you assess your audit log settings against several industry standards, including the Windows Logging Cheat Sheet, so you can improve your logging to collect all the right things. LogMD can also be used to hunt for targeted, malicious, and interesting artifacts such as large registry keys, autoruns, WMI persistence, malicious PowerShell execution, and targeted log events that can then be collected by your log management solution. LogMD provides more details and easy-to-read reports than your EDR solutions can provide. We offer free, professional, and consulting licenses. Discover it. Discover LogMD today at log-md.com. Okay, let's take a look at some newsworthy items. Newsworthy. All right. So we have this insurance company that refuses to pay a not pet you bill. And and says that this particular act was one of war. The company that got not pet you is suing for $100 million, their insurance company. Right? Not the perpetrators. Of course, they don't know who they are. 
but they're su- suing the insurance company for failing to pay. Yeah, this this is awesome, right? So I hear this a lot. Hey, we, but we have cyber insurance. It'll it'll take the the big big loss off of our our hands. So you know we're we're going to be protected that way. Well, not so fast, right? Uh, insurance is learning in the cyber world that uh, they don't necessarily have to pay in all conditions, and this is one of them where they're claiming a U.S. snack food giant. Mondelez is suing insurance company for a hundred million bucks. Uh, so they got nailed because of the SMB port being open and and or someone clicking on something, not Petya nailed them. And uh, insurance company saying ah, that's an act of war. We're not paying. It's like wait a minute, what? And so this is an interesting precedent. I'm love to hear the outcome of this if we ever do. It might be settled out of court, but uh, yeah. It, it's an interesting pre- precedent, I think, uh, for people that are carrying cyber insurance. Uh, understand what it is, what it covers, more importantly, what it doesn't cover. Yeah, and some I- I've heard. Now, I haven't read a cyber insurance policy myself. I'd like to get my hands on one just to skim over it. I don't know how long they are or whatnot, but I'm assuming they're like 50 pages long with all the conditions. It'd be like a, one of those, what do you call it, uh, Check the um, terms and conditions of your software, and Eula's. it would take yeah. it, it would take a week to read it. And they, and they say that if you if you read all of the ones that you actually um, approved of, that it would take you basically half a lifetime to read them all. They're so long, and there's so many of them. I'm wondering if social engineering was covered because a lot of them I've heard do not cover social engineering. So if you have a user that was tricked into doing something, then it didn't cover that, right? And you could argue that this not Petya, the user was tricked into getting their system ransomware. Hmm, might be a conversation to have with Aaron. We have to have a podcast with Aaron. What is social engineering? Um, does this cover phishing people? I'm not sure I think phishing is a social engineering item, though it is oh, the obviously... The cyber insurance would cover... Uh, an attacker actively hacking a website, something like that, but not social engineering a user and then um, somehow getting creds to a server and encrypting the whole database, things like that. But that's that's the bulk of how most people get compromised, right? Yeah, the passive attacks, not necessarily the active hands-on keyboard attacks. Yeah, what happens if you have RDP open to the Internet? What are they going to claim there? Are they, you know... I know a lot of yeah. uh, cyber insurance companies are now requiring and have partnered with uh, cyber firms where they have to do assessments and you have to pass a readiness assessment. So if you have RDP open the internet, you know you you potentially won't be covered for that as well, right? Or anything else they find that's gross negligence. Exactly, and and it might be worth a hundred million dollars, or maybe you're certified today, not tomorrow, for you to actually read the uh, uh, cyber insurance policy. <laughs> I mean, I would. There you go. How much is it? How much can you save by actually reading the thing? Yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, next topic, uh, two-factor auth bypass. Yeah, I, I read this and I went, this isn't a bypass. This is going back to what we just talked about. This is social engineering. This is phishing. Uh, there's two parts to this. One, there's now a tool to help the testers fish for this condition. But it, the article is kind of indicating that two factors being bypassed. It really isn't. It's fooling the user as a part of the email fish to then enter the two-factor auth into the web page. And we have seen this 
where uh, we, you know as we capture fishing stuff back in in uh, those scenarios where we were tracking it pretty heavily to see what kinds of things these fishing was trying to do. And again, this is a great example of why we were doing this was to you know what should we train our users? Is there something really interesting here that we can train our users for? Um, and so I saw this, this. This is not a bypass. I totally disagree with these articles in saying that it's bypass. I think that's uh, glamorizing it. This is a social engineer to get the user to enter their two-factor creds into a web page. It's a big difference, in my opinion. It could be exaggeration by journalists to try and get clicks or whatever, two-factor off bypass. It's it's not really that. I've, I've heard of uh, hackers um, calling a phone number and saying, hey... Um, you're going to get a four-digit code. You've got my old number, and there's no way I can. I'm trying to recover my password. Can you just please text me your uh, th- whatever number gets texted to you? And they're like, okay. And so that's how you can bypass the two-factor auth as well. Don't, don't ever forward texts like that. Yeah. In other words. Yeah. This is Graham Cluley. Uh, so this is this is not a slouch of a, of a infosec person. He's well known, so even he's fluffing it up a bit. Uh, yeah, bypass. I'm not really sure that's the word, but uh, I think the, the important point to take away from this article is this is a great thing to train your users because uh, this is obviously within the minute of if they're actively phishing you, and if within a minute they use that that token, uh, they're in right. I mean, technically, I guess it is a bypass because you did have two factor auth and. And the hackers got through. Yeah, I you, mean, you could also you call it a password it bypass because they got your password, right? Yeah. I don't know. Bypass means nobody had to do anything. You just bypassed it. That's how a I paywall bypass. bypass. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, next, 773 million passwords no, circulating 773 the million passwords. That's a lot. <laughs> yes. But only 2.7% of them were unique. 21 million of these passwords that were in all these breaches compiled by uh, Troy Hunt and HaveIBeenPwned.com, only 2.7% of the passwords were unique, which means password reuse is ugly and seriously an issue in our, uh, well, our industry, but uh, users' perspective anyway. I think that's a big lesson here, people. Uh, (laughs) Reusing passwords... I mean, Man, password I mean, managers are kind of hard to use sometimes, but I think it's worth it because you, I mean, wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a bell curve, but man, it is so worth it because when somebody gets phoned now, I can very quickly run, I'm, I'm a big LastPass fan, I can quickly run the security check in LastPass. It too will check the list of have you been pwned kind of stuff and say these, these email addresses are associated with these scenarios and prompts you to go change your password in those items. Uh, but it helps you make sure you don't reuse passwords by this, doing the security check. And, and that's real powerful. And if you do find out about a, a breach, like <laughs> our last podcast where I had to do two in one day, uh, having that in LastPass and easily going, log in, go to change password, change it, generate new long cryptic, I don't know what it is password, save it, and never have to worry about it again is really, really useful and avoids this database scenario. Right. And and I, I see no problem getting your employees totally on board and your company um, actually encouraging um, users to or their employees to use password managers like LastPass, 1Password, or whatever. Yeah. So you mentioned Have I Been Pwned. That's Troy Hunt, right? Correct. He's been doing this for a while, and, and you put in your email address, and it'll give you all the sites that they know about, 
um, LinkedIn, Yahoo, whatever, and then just tell you you're in, you're in list number five. And you won't know anything other than it was list number five because they don't know where the source is. But it gives you an idea. Uh, but again, all it's going to tell you is you know, for sure go change the ones they know about. But uh, it should be a real good indication if you're in there that password to use is uh, going to be devastating to you if you do use the same password in multiple websites. Because these guys do log in. When Yahoo went down and, and LinkedIn went down, they immediately went after other email sites and other social media sites with your user accounts and broke into a bunch. So password to use is a deadly thing in these days. Yeah, and that's have I been pwned, not have you been pwned. Yeah. If you go to have you been pwned, it's probably some hacker site there where you enter your credentials and they harvest them and then then it'll be 773 million and one and one <laughs> but anyway um on to uh bypass blacklisted words filter via wildcards yeah this was a twitter post um from omar omar espino uh it was interesting because i, I saw this somebody passed it my way because our love with uh, obfuscation and uh, i'm surprised daniel Bahana didn't chime in here i, I think maybe i forwarded it to him i'm not sure um, but I saw this and I went, oh, this is this is too easy. And his take on the slant was, again, using these kinds of obfuscations to launch Calc Notepad Task Manager. There's examples in the tweet. The link to the tweets in the show notes, so you guys can look at what they're doing here. Uh, we okay, let's yeah. yeah, let's let's describe it real quick. So basically, you have a um, a command prompt and you type in PowerShell C colon. Uh, backslash question question star question backslash star three question and it keeps going and you can see the c and then lc dot yep and then question question x question right? which is exe yeah windows allows you as as does linux to put in the i don't know one character i don't know what it is <laughs> so right um, and allows you to jump paths as well as shortcut and and obfuscate the binary as long as it's unique enough to launch it. And there's three well, examples. I guess in command prompt or in uh, command.exe, the, the question is a single character, like a dot in regex, and the star is multiple characters, right? And Windows just figures out what you meant by uh, traversing the directory structure and finds something that matches and then launches it. Yeah, because in this example, it's C colon backslash question question splat question, which means I don't care what directory, but the next subdirectory must be splat3 question, which is going to be 32, which means system32. And then obviously C, I don't care what the next letter is, which is A, and then LC dot, which we know is the extension, and it says I don't care what the first one is, but X is the middle one, and I don't care what the third one is, which tells you it's EXE. All right, so it's pretty easy to discern them, but you can't use this, you can't check for this in a dictionary check, which is the point of of how they're getting by things, right? That was the point of uh, the tweet to begin with. And we're like, wait a minute, we catch this, no problem. So we, we threw these into uh, a machine and ran them and log and deed them. And, and they showed up in our interesting artifact uh, report immediately because, uh, again, I think this stuff's very easy to detect once it executes on a machine. Uh, we're not looking for buzzwords. We're looking for how many weird characters are in here. So look for right. asterisks and question marks in your obfuscation when you're looking at executions of Windows commands, and uh, you'll catch this kind of yeah. stuff pretty easily. It's kind of cool because they, they say, okay, I want to launch C colon and then slash star slash star with a two in it, which means, okay, system 32, yep. right? It's one of the only ones with a two in it at the end, or it is the only one with a two in it at the very end. And then N question question E, N-O-T-E, and then star D dot star. Yeah, so that's yeah. notepad. 
right? It's it's, like, it's kind of cool. Yeah. But uh, totally detectable if you're looking for special characters like that in, uh, you know, in, in whatever kind of order, you're just counting them. Yeah, if you want an example, the uh, Windows logging, uh, Windows Splunk logging cheat sheet as an example of obfuscation detection, this would work. Tweak it a little bit for um, command.exe slash 4688s to catch this kind of execution, and uh, you would be good to go. Uh, good example there. Okay, on to our next topic. Well, what kind of sites do we have today? Well, it's a simple one. I think uh, uh, being that uh, we just announced uh, releasing the Windows uh, logging cheat sheet update for 2019 and the uh, several things added to the Windows advanced logging cheat sheet. Uh, they have been both released and, and Twittered, and you know, it takes me forever to scroll by all the people that like it. So they have been updated. Uh, there will be more coming, but to let everybody know that Malware Archaeology Windows Logging and Windows Advanced Logging Cheat Sheets have been updated and released for 2019. So uh, have fun with those. Some more stuff to make queries and, and look for. Cool, cool. What's up next? Oh. All right, we talked about these, right? Yeah, we did. So they're obvious based on 773 million sold or lost. <laughs> have I been pwned.com? Yep. And a password manager like LastPass, one password, right? Yeah, anything like that. We know the benefits of a password manager, but can we go over them real quick in case people, you know, are hesitant to use them? Uh, I think the one benefit is uh, uh, my wife's an accountant and so um, not a techie. And she uses this, lives and dies by it. And if I can get her using it and basically can't live without it, that means everybody can. So the big advantage of, of it is, even for non-techies, it is usable once that bell curve is learned. Um, you can now have, clearly the biggest advantage is having everything in one place. You're not writing it down, opening a book or whatever. It's hard to lose, leave in a bus, subway, cab, whatever. And if something does go down, you can log into your vault and very quickly rip through your items and change them. Everything's one place. And more importantly, you now can easily generate 30 character unique funky passwords. And again, my rule is if you can remember your password, it's not very good unless you're using or putting two-factor on there. Which, based on one of the other articles, may not be enough either. And if we have so many passwords that if you can remember a good password, which... Which most of us can. I, I mean, I could think of a 20-character password that I can remember. But try having 50 20-character passwords that are all different, right? Because you don't want to use the ones that's the same, because that could be the target of a breach or the um, be stolen. And then now you got to change 20 different websites, and you can't remember which ones they were. If you hear about a breach, or you go to Have I Been Pwned, and, and you see one there... Um, you can quickly from anywhere, even if you're on vacation, it, as long as you have internet access, you can get to your cloud password account and change that one password if you need to. Yeah, 20, you're funny. I have hundreds in my last pass vault. You can also save shortcuts in there. You can also have secure notes and things like that. So, you know, my wife has multiple accounts for one website because she's an accountant and has to do taxes and whatnot. So it's it's great for saving that kind of data too. Yeah, I've seen somebody's password book, and it's like hundreds of pages. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Gotta gotta have a vault. Use a vault, man. Please, use a vault. Okay, now, Malware of the Month. What did you find? This was an interesting one. I wish I could play with this one. 
<laughs> but but we didn't, so we're reading some. There's a link to the article that this came out of. I've talked about these in the past. The thing that really scares me is these uh, you know boot disk root kits, and this is uh, called Sednet. It's a UEFI root kit, and they did a pretty good uh, breakdown of it, which is why we included it in here because this is the kind of stuff that scares me. But it also points out to some obvious things that we've always said to look for, and also, uh, things you should look for and some things that generally most of us don't have a tool suite for. So it, it kind of goes across the path there. Um, and one of it is, of course... Now, hang on. You said that we've told people where to look and that it would have been detected had they have looked in these places or set these things. Where is that information? Well, the cheat sheets would probably be a good start. Uh, not only all of the cheat sheets, because in the, the some of them are locations and or you know harvesting and or Splunk queries and, and Humio queries that allow you to kind of see the examples. Right? Uh, there's uh, lots of other places. Uh, another good place to focus on what kinds of things you should look for would be the miter attack items, right? Which we also have a cheat sheet for. Uh, because now you can map what the adversary is trying to do, and I don't think these are probably in there yet because this is a new attack, so maybe this something miter is going to have to uh, add. Um, but this is these are the sources where you can kind of get this to say, you know, what do I look for and where? Okay, so you're looking for a, an EXE dropped into System 32. Um, is that even allowed? Yeah, anything new. Yeah, you can add stuff to System 32, right? When you try to... When you try to do it, you know, sometimes you have to put it on the desktop, but then you can copy and paste and drop it in System32. So adding things is easy. Replacing them is, is not so easy. Ah, so you have protected operating system files in yep. System32 somewhere that you can't change. System file protect. You you overwrite one, boom, Windows is going to overwrite it back from the, from the secure vault yep. of the documents. It does a pretty good job at that. So rpcnetp.exe was dropped into System32, and it installs as a service. Ding, 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 ding. Again, one of our key features in LogMD is to watch auto runs. So here it is. This is the first thing they did, and they installed the service. If you're not watching for 7045 events, which is the install new service in Windows, uh, you're, you're doing it wrong and or running an auto runs tool like we have with LogMD. And we also look for 7045s with LogMD. So uh, this is a perfect example of, man, this is where it starts. Right. Watch your auto runs. Uh, watch your service installs. And third, this dropped into System32. So watch for anything new in the last 24 hours or your window of your tool suite uh, of how long you're looking. If you're looking once a week, then you have to go back seven days. Show me anything new in the last seven days. And you have to exclude all the known good stuff, which is a lot of files. But So if you're, if, if you're watching auto runs and doing a good job of it, the, you would have caught this. Oh, yeah. Right. This would have been a red flag. It Big would have time. set off alerts and you would have investigated and you would have seen something suspicious. And then you would have uh, dug deeper. Right. Yeah, on, on top of that, one of our new features with 2.2 coming out is auto VTing auto runs. So you now can run auto runs with a with a minus VT that will automatically, as you run this, uh, let's say you schedule auto runs to run every hour on a box after you baselined it. Generally, new auto runs don't show up very often. So you can automatically, for any new ones, auto VT them with your private or public key, uh, whatever you have. And then you can get a result. My guess with this one is it probably came back. I've never seen this before in Virus Total, which would be a huge red flag to those of us in the uh, watch this industry, blue teamers, and saying, "Wait a minute, Virus Total doesn't know about this, and it's a service, and it's brand new." 
Uh, that would definitely. And it's dropped in system 32. <laughs> yeah, and it's dropped in system 32. All those things mean, yeah, VirusTotal has to know about this yeah. if it's legit. Generally speaking, yes. Unless it's Microsoft and it's brand spanking new. And then uh, another thing which is a little more difficult, but stay tuned. We'll have some news on this in the in the coming months. Uh, injects a DLL into service host and then also into Internet Explorer. Uh, this particular line item is what we were talking about earlier. Uh, in regards to next month's malware, which does that very thing and, and injects into Explorer as well as another service. So uh, it does a dual injection. And that's really cool because I teach people in class to kill Explorer. And if it injects into a second service, or in this case, service host, but in the other one, it, it picks another one, uh, it watches itself. And so you're thinking, oh, I'm going to get rid of this and clear it by killing Explorer. And then all of a sudden, poof, it comes back. And it's like, whoa. Well, that's what... That's what you did first. Kill Explorer yep. to get rid of the malware. And in this case, so the sample we'll talk about next month, uh, which is going to make it into my training because it's pretty cool. Uh, this dual injection thing is uh, really good for this kind of watcher service because, again, they know our tricks. Kill Explorer. Okay, how can we keep that from killing our product? Oh, we'll just inject twice. Um, this is harder to deter- to uh, identify. This is getting into the EDR space or... Uh, maybe a possible future feature in uh, <clears throat> some tool we like. Um, and, and so you'll definitely have to kick it up a notch here. This is injecting uh, where you don't actually leave the DLL you know, open, like if you're running uh, LogMD minus proc, again, a new feature in 2.2, where you can see all the running processes, all the DLLs are loaded. If you don't keep that DLL there and you truly inject where the DLL is just not there anymore, um, yeah, this is going to be hidden, and most tools will not detect this except your upper-end EDR or forensics or uh, other injection hunting tools. Is this what they call that memory-only malware? Yeah, this would be a good example of memory-only malware, right? A memory dump would uh, have you seeing some interesting injection points and whatnot where you have to scan memory for strings and or things that volatility might do. All right, but obviously it access the disk somewhere, right? At some point, in theory. In theory, but again, UEFI, so this thing found a way to load in and stay out of uh, people's way or make it more difficult. It replaces, it replaced autocheck.exe. What is that? So when you boot up and you get that, you know, sometimes you have a disk going crazy and it says, hey, I want to do a disk scan on there. They're defree. Oh, yeah. That's what that is. Um, and so what they're doing in the course of that thing starting up is they're exploiting that auto check capability to load their malware. And this happens very early on, right? Um, so watching that registry key where auto check is loaded and to make sure nothing else is there um, is, is kind of an important thing. So this is an audit- auditing item, a registry audit item, to see that nothing else was added. Again, don't know, haven't seen the sample to know if uh, you would see it there or they're just automatically doing this on boot up. I have to assume they are changing the key as well, but that was not clear in the article. Now, what about the registry? You said it modifies um, some registry key. Yeah, in this case, uh, they, they talk about Winder System32 config system, right? And this is where the auto-check, auto-CHK, they change it. And this is, again, the, the typical place you're looking for this, uh, where they change it to auto-check.auto-CHE. And this is how they're loading their bad stuff along with the auto-check. And so that's a that's a good thing to watch for, right, is... Uh, uh, this is a boot up. This always starts. It's built into Windows to check your disks, make sure everything's healthy, throws you that little pop-up that you get. You want to scan this thing now, like you see very frequently with USB drives. Um, and so uh, this is this is uh, high-level access if they can do this. And so that's what they've done. They said, okay, when you auto-check, don't run the actual uh, defrag cleanup tool, the FDisk tool. 
run the auto CHE, which is total plumage. All right. I mean, we talked about detection. What about prevention? Well, the article talks about enabling secure boot, which means, hey, don't change my UEFI space. Um, a lot of people don't for various reasons. Uh, those of us did not cover, I don't remember reading the article that if you use full disk encryption that this would prevent it. Um, I'm thinking maybe, but they didn't cover that. Uh, you can also, once obviously it goes after UFI, uh, there is firmware security assessment using ChipSec. It's a framework here you can use. It's on GitHub. Uh, links in the show note. Um, and and so theoretically what you're starting to see here is I can't just look at the operating system. I have to look in front of the operating system. And a tool that I actually had some input uh, in trying to convince them to build was TZWorks. Um, they have a suite of tools, uh, one of which is a boot disk tool. There was a, an article that had come out a couple years ago with uh, Mandiant. And uh, this scare, the Win9Ti group that I dealt with in the gaming industry uh, was known for using these boot disk scenarios. This is similar to what happened to Sony when they got wiped. Um, if you can get in front of the OS where as the OS is loading, the firmware then says, hey, load this too, uh, that's very hard to detect because uh, this is where you're manipulating the partitions and the boot sequence. Um, and Windows, by nature, doesn't have that in there. Um, and so you need something else like a Linux disk. You can easily boot a Linux disk and go looking for this condition. But TZWorks has made a, a tool with their big IR $20,000 package that you can use to, to look for this condition that loads a driver in Windows and, and kind of can tell you if uh, this condition exists. So, um, yeah, this is this is a good one. Um, this is only the beginning. I think we're going to see more and more of these kinds of uh, persistent malwares, and if they do a better job at hiding it uh, or even launching it, um, this is why this is really important. Once this gets hooked, you're, you're pwned whether you reimage the OS or not because, again, UFI has been infected, and it's going to put and update Windows as you reinstall. That's that's the clever part of these kinds of malwares. Exactly. And we talked about things that we know about already, techniques um, for this type of malware that you should be looking for, and it's all documented nice and pretty in the cheat sheets and that. There was there was a one or two things that were brand new, and this has to do with malware management. Yep. Right? This is a perfect example of malware management. Or, again, what uh, Miter's doing with the attack stuff. Uh, this is where you read these reports and you say, okay, can I detect this? Well, yep, Michael and Brian keep talking about looking at auto runs and new service installs. Man, that's where this thing started. So if you were doing that, you would have been uh, alerted to this, theoretically. Uh, EDR should, if you can get a hold of this malware, boy, this is a great test for EDR software. But EDR should be able to detect this kind of thing if they're half decent. So uh, uh, that's a good one. Injecting DLL into memory twice, that's definitely a tougher one. Um, this is definitely a weakness in, in our easy ability. This is not a basic analysis scenario. We we're getting into memory forensics now, so now we're crossing over into the forensic space. And watching for new binaries in known places like System32, and again, the cheat sheet, the, the registry auditing cheat sheet has the auto check uh, registry key. And so you can look to see if that's been modified because uh, it is an automatic startup item. Yeah. And, you know, if you're defending an environment, you, you've got your castle, right? You've got archers in the tower. You've got the moat around and you've got the drawbridge and everything. If you can find any weaknesses, you know, you need to address those. And this is where you find those weaknesses in, is in reports like this. And that's why it always helps to look at these articles and what's the latest and greatest malware doing. Yeah. Where do you find these things? Do we have a list somewhere? Uh, malware Archaeology does host a list of malware that I find interesting or people make me aware of or I'm like, ah, this is a good article. This has some good details to look for. 
Um, it's kind of how I started and why I created the malwaremanagementframework.org website was to try to say, you need to do this as a part of your security job, right? It's kind of a, a deep dive threat intel. It's not the public threat intel. It's it's consuming these things and saying, can I look or do I have a tool? And for example, I doubt most people here have the ability to do this, which is why we're listing these two, Chipsec and TZ Works, because now you may be identifying a budget gap and, and may want to go uh, set budget and get twenty grand to buy the TZ Work IR suite so you can uh, scan your systems occasionally for this condition. Or if something like these services and an auto runs kicking off happen, you're like, oh, wait, okay, let me let me run this on the system and see if I see any modifications to the partitions and, and boot sectors. Now, to our topic of the day, to agents or not to agent, that is the question. So are we secret agent men? Yes. Secret agent That's a song, yeah. which I won't sing. I just did. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, and before I forget, uh, all the links that we mentioned, all the articles that we mentioned are in the show notes. So just download the show notes and you got everything there as well as notes from the show. And where do we get the show notes? Where do you get the show notes? I don't know. Maybe log-md.com? <laughs> yeah. Or bdirpodcast.com will get you to the show notes. Um, you were copied on a Twitter conversation. Yeah, this this thing kind of took an interesting turn. It was a it was an interesting. Yeah, how did it start? Uh, well, I got copied on a post by Florian Roth. If you don't know who Florian Roth is, uh, you, you should. Uh, he's definitely somebody to follow. He works on the Sigma project, which is a um, logging a generic logging language or query language that allows you to build log queries. And he does a bunch of other stuff. But uh, one of the things he's well known for is the Sigma project. And so Frank McGovern. Um, tagged me and thought, thought, what do you think? And it started off, uh, again, nothing to do with what the topic of the, of the podcast is, but morphed there. Uh, CrowdStrike just recently divided, this is from Florian, just divided endpoint protection solutions into three categories. Prevention, next-gen AV, detection, EDR, and managed threat hunting, MDR. Managed threat hunting, I'm thinking pretty sure because they have a managed service, that's what they're uh, referring to. Threat until integration as an overreaching discipline. I like that breakdown and see the need for all of them. And then I was copied by Frank, it says tagging Hacker Hurricane. And then uh, in my course, I said, well, wait a minute, um, these are definitions. And uh, I, I had a talk about EDR at DerbyCon um, year before last. And uh, the terms are morphing because uh, we have this concept of EPP as kind of the uh, endpoint protection platform. And a lot of these older terms like Netsch and are, are going away. And so I said, all right, hmm, methinks Gartner, Inc., Anton Shavakin... Uh, might not align, uh, would like to know, uh, why not uh, MTH? So uh, threat hunting is my scenario there. I, want, I kind of missed out on threat hunting here from a, yeah. from a uh, not a managed service, right? But I would think the solutions would potentially have threat hunting in them. And he says, uh, I think this is exactly how we categorize it. However, there are many more other types of MDR, managed detection and response, apart from managed EDR. Uh, so what is threat hunting EDR called now? Threat hunting. <laughs> and that was Anton's uh, response. Uh, uh, is a use case for EDR, not a product. So it has a name of its own. So threat hunting uh, seems to be a little bit open there. But that's not where this, this conversation got interesting. Florian chimed back. EDR is a real-time uh, focus on processes and network connections. Uh, and MDR has a focus on files, caches, registry, and can often... Uh, be used as a scanner. So this is, uh, again, I can go look for things, right? I'm threat hunting. Let's see. An EDR can have a database uh, of that uh, RT data, and, but EDRs don't see thwarts that happened before they were installed, web shells, config, backdoors, etc. 
And then Richard uh, Baitlick chimed in. Do customers want a single endpoint agent that does all three? And so this is where this uh, conversation took a turn, which led to this podcast. So keyword here, agent. agent. Yeah, secret agent, man. So yeah, there's some good names involved in this Twitter conversation. Um, it was it was really a really good one. It was a Friday afternoon too, so um, good time to have it to ponder over the weekend, and, and thus leading to this podcast and the discussions we had last week. And so uh, that's the question. Do customers want one agent or uh, possibly three, right? So, for example, you have AV. Do you replace AV and go with an EDR vendor where it combines AV and EDR into one agent? So now you don't have two on the box. Um, and now you're using a solution that does two things. And, and maybe a third uh, agent that does something else like uh, threat hunting or remediation or whatever. And so I, I think the challenge here is... If you have one agent and a tool that does everything, and those of us have used, like, let's say, McAfee EPO, uh, that console isn't really designed to be used for everything, like their Nitro SIM product, uh, log management product that they have being integrated in the EPO. It's not the friendliest way to do that kind of SIM-y log stuff, in my opinion. And so uh, when you start combining all these things into one big console, I think they get very difficult to use or more difficult to use. Uh, maybe the tasks will take you longer. I think they actually do take you longer than if you're looking at each individual kind of thing, which may lead some of us to say, I want a really good AV product. I want a really good EDR product. I want a really good threat hunting product. And maybe that's three agents, right? And that's kind of where this conversation went sideways. All right. So it turned into a conversation about how many agents are acceptable, yeah, right, for security. At that point, uh, my response to Richard was, uh, I would hope not, Jack of all trades, master of none, right? This is a concern I have because you and I did a big EDR eval a couple years ago with the previous company, and uh, we had some very interesting results. Um, we definitely had some issues with some of the agents. Um, we had no issues with some other other agents, and, and again, does this replace AV? Should uh, it run with AV? And this is where I think companies are struggling. So now all of a sudden, you know, I'm trying to do better than AV, which is kind of, you know, older signature-based prevention, whereas EDR is more current uh, behavioral prevention, like Word doc opens command shell, opens PowerShell, wham, close it, right? The things that, that are really hitting us today. And so now you've gone from one agent with AV now to two agents with EDR. And, and so um, that, that's a question. It kind of poses an interesting thing. And so the, the conversation <laughs> continued. Now Greg Barnes has hopped on. Uh, with respect, I don't buy this at all. Uh, this could, and in my not-so-humble opinion, should be done, arguably could go even further to replace other security use cases, uh, the endpoint. Bloat is a serious problem. Yeah, it definitely is, right? Um, because, well, yeah, but Windows has a lot of bloat to it. And it is bloat. I mean, how many agents are running on a Windows system? A hundred, two hundred? Uh well come on, adding one more isn't going to be that much. I mean, as a percentage. Well maybe if you're the OS provider and you have certain secret sauce and things you know that you don't let everybody else know. Uh, maybe it's your your stuff working together and all the testing you do for your stuff, like all the Windows services, all those services are agents, right? Anything running in the test scheduler that's potentially loading by Windows is potentially an agent, and the auto run might be an agent, depending on what your definition of an agent is. And I, I pointed out that every new version of Windows adds many new 20-plus services, a.k.a. agents, so why is this okay? Why is this not okay for one to three security agents? Thin, lean, and mean code 
not bloat like Acrobat. I picked on Acrobat. Yeah, it's bloated. You compare yeah. Acrobat to Fox at Reader, it's one half the size, right? So just an example. So is it possible that maybe thin, lean, mean agents that are designed well for that purpose, is it better than having a big, fat agent that might uh, do too much? Who knows? I know Microsoft tried to be a single agent. I've heard this for years that they're going to have a single agent that does everything. Hell, uh, McAfee EPO has at least two agents, right? It's got the it's got the uh, framework yeah. uh, service that runs that watches everything. It has the McAfee agent which watches all the other agents that or that loads all the other agents, and then you have the virus scan agent. Um, so even that McAfee thing has three things running, right? And so yeah, you know the question is is it okay just to you know add another agent? You know, again, I'm not trying to say it is or isn't because I happen to kind of agree with everybody's perspective here. And then Richard replied back, <laughs> which is really where we're getting with this. Uh, CISOs do not want to fight with CIOs. So the chief information security officer does not want to fight with the chief information officer or the chief technology officer when sysadmins hear users complain about endpoint software. Right. So let's stop there. They're complaining about endpoint software. Now, my experience is I've had issues with just IT's endpoint software. We haven't even gotten to the security part of it. And then you're going to yeah. add security. So automatically, I think uh, CIOs and CTOs are having a hard enough time keeping their stuff stable and working and not having too much impact. Or maybe it's maybe it's accepted that their agents have to be there, right? We get asset management, possible you know possible whitelisting, which could be a security item. You've got AV, you've got this, the distribution and compliance softwares, right? The big fixes, SSCMs. So you have all these things that you're loading as an IT organization. Uh, onto it and now all of a sudden you want to start doing security which kind of watches all the things and, and potentially has uh, an impact um, that's a very real thing as security people the point of agents is um, uh, we have to be careful here so he goes on and says uh, when they find multiple agents running the next demand is i want one agent running endpoint software is in large environments is necess is a necessary hassle i don't wish upon anyone and I said, yeah, I see multiple IT agents and systems all the time, uh, DevOps agents, uh, inventory agent, config agent, uh, but that's okay because it's, it's minor IT, meaning, you know, it's their stuff, so therefore it's fine. Uh, more of a lack of understanding, testing, and requirements, maybe, right, in my opinion, is what I wrote. And uh, Richard said, I'm thinking of a large enterprise where I worked 300K plus, so Richard worked at uh, GE and GM, uh, amongst other places, Mandian as well, 300,000 plus endpoints where simply having all agents running was a miracle. Probably less than 10% of all of them had all the required software operation operational at any one point. This means I've got an agent that does 20 things, and I've turned it on to do two. <laughs> That's what that means. Hence, the drive to reduce the number of agents. So, yeah, I can kind of see the bigger you get, the more things you want to do, the more solutions that someone's convinced you to buy – Every one of them is going to have an agent, right? Some service running or something that boots up. Like maybe a password manager? Um, maybe a password manager <laughs> if you get into one of the one of the uh, big ones, um, CyberArk. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, just the, the bloat. Uh, we, were, we were doing some research with a database, and I, I uh, installed MySQL. And no less than 10 things I had to uninstall when we were done with the testing, right? It just, oh man, it just installed all kinds of junk. And all I wanted was a simple MySQL database. Yeah. I think there's side effects of when we install one thing, we get, like like I pointed out with McAfee, you actually get three or four things, right? Right. 
things like NX log, you have to, when you're playing with that, you have to remember to go uninstall it. Otherwise it's using up all your network traffic, even though it's not even working when you're, when you're done with it, right? It's doing nothing except it's trying to ping that server that you took down. Right. Right. So you got to, wow. There's a lot of stuff you have to be aware of. Yeah. And we want to do bone scans on boxes. Uh, we need an agent to do, you know, to get into the box. There, and there's all kinds of, it's an endless list here, right? Navpreet Jatana, I do not know this individual. Um, I couldn't agree more with Richard. Um, why have only one endpoint agent when you can have three or more agents, said no one ever. That was one uh, on the key value props of uh, CrowdStrike Lightweight Elegant. Um, and then he asked, uh, who I don't believe chimed in, but uh, D.A.I. Perkovich shed some light, question mark. So uh, it kind of continued uh, a little bit. And Greg Barnes chimed in and said, but hey, this doesn't even have to be the reason to consolidate. I have over a half a dozen more. And I then asked the next interesting question. Um, uh, does scheduled tasks count as an agent? Just curious. The Googs, Firefox, Adobe, Bloat, OneDrive all use them to update their things, um, you know, regularly. And oh. then Greg Barnes said, pointed up and said, yeah, this and, which prompted him to create an article about all the other reasons why this is an issue. But he... He then chimed in and said, security tools account for a notoriously high percentage of the crashes, slowdowns for endpoints. So we always enter said argument with CIOs and CTOs with strikes against you. Why is this tool constantly crashing? Well, is is that a reality or a perception? Um, I'm going to say it probably depends, but I'm going to probably also agree that the more of these third-party things you add to the system, the potential for this issue to occur for sure if you have an agent that spikes every so often and your other agent spikes with similar kinds of behavior, looking at disk, whatever, um, and now suddenly they're contending for disk, you can have some horrendous performance issues. We came across this recently when uh, somebody flipped some switches for McAfee, turned some stuff on, and uh, uh, our weekly evening scans brought people's older laptops to a crawl, right? And so uh, that had to be investigated and a couple things properly adjusted and then things ran much better, right? So that was that's a great example of where yeah. it just wasn't done well. Uh, and then once it was done well, it worked just fine. So maybe it's a combination of things, but that got covered too in this conversation. Well, I mean, if you misconfigure <laughs> something or something has been misconfigured in your organization, that's going to bring things to a crawl. I mean, more than adding another agent and configuring yeah. them both properly. Yeah, I think uh, many organizations, which is my next point on the Twitter conversation, was I'm pretty sure human error and, and AK oh, yeah. That's way at the admin top. and users is at the top of the list of, you know, again, errors that occur and, and impact. Uh, does this translate to poor or no testing and pilot? Hurry up and deploy. And then Richard replied back, says, no, and this is the tragedy. Uh, this was a well-tested project manage, et cetera, and had it had a dedicated team running it. The problem was simply diversity, even though it was Windows underneath dealing with 300,000 plus systems meant conditions you might never expect. And my reply back was, I am sure I see it with two security right. agents, AV and EDR, and, and tons of IT stuff. Um, there's a bunch of other side threads of that thing. You can actually hunt this down. That's why we mentioned the names. You really want to read the entire thread of all these threads. But it led us to an interesting conversation, which led to the, to the podcast, um, because um, this is something that uh, is near and dear to our heart in regards to uh, how we look at and use LogMD and not using it as an agent, but yet scheduling it as a task in order to avoid these agent uh, worries because there are so many complaints about somebody's bad agent. And, and I think 
that's a big piece here is somebody had a bad experience and in, in even small orgs or medium orgs and said, no, I, you know, this, this, this AV stuff will just kill us. Well, if you don't configure it correctly, yes, it will. If you forget to uh, remark out, for example, uh, again, look at the logs. Is it beating on something all the time? And McAfee beat up on SSCM and filled our, our environment logs with, uh, with all that, that contention. Sysmon does not get along with some uh, AVs. You know, with Silence, for example, you gotta you gotta whitelist out the uh, EDR solutions or AV solutions, right? There's there's all these pieces and parts and interactions that I think sometimes maybe not being done well will will cause somebody who have a really bad experience. They take that to their next job, and suddenly there's this immediate uh, oh no, um, this stuff this stuff gives us problems and heartaches, and and security is. Yeah, is kind of a new add more agents kind of area, right? Because all the solutions we we have are are somehow waveform or manner uh, agent based. So I I agree, it, it's a challenge. I've mentioned this before, um, having an agent that that forwards logs, but then turning on firewall logging, it will forward its own. It will cause itself to log and then forward that, and then you have a pe- <laughs> perpetual machine going on. That's that's just I, I detected network traffic. I'm going to log it. I detected, you know, and then I'm going to send that log. Oops, I detected more network traffic. I'm going to log it and then I'm going to send that. Yeah, and it just cascades. And if you're not looking for things like that to happen when you make changes, then you could bring the whole organization's network to its knees, not to mention having productivity failure on the endpoints because you're, you're just logging and forwarding logs, you know, a thousand times a second. Uh, it adds up. This came up with a firewall, um, redundant firewall mirrored scenario in Cisco where uh, somebody had been logging that, right? And and there was some replication, and I got sent this warning saying, be sure you guys check for this stuff. Um, he was literally duplicating his firewall logs twice um, and just completely overwhelmed his, his log environment uh, with nefarious messages, right? So there's configuration that has to be taken into account, which is, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a uh, important part here. Now, Windows is designed to, to do scheduled tasks and services, right? So what are some advantages and disadvantages of scheduled tasks having a service as opposed to a task? If it's running all the time, uh, this is where the contention of this running with this running with this running, this running, and, and how its behavior when it spikes a CPU and or memory uh, is important. Now, scheduled tasks run at some basis. Now, granted, you could kick it off on login and, and have the thing run forever, uh, but I don't think that's really what the scheduled task is designed to do. It's designed to do a task. Start, do this thing, stop, wait for the next time iteration or condition, login, yeah. whatever the, the conditions. There's lots of conditions you can make a scheduled task. And so you have a you have a blip in time, right? It does something, it stops. Like Google and Firefox use it and OneDrive use it to go in, check for updates. Oh, we got an update, great, start that process, and then uh, wait to the next 24-hour period that it, it checks or whatever. So I, I think there's some advantages here that in a scheduled task scenario uh, might allow you to have a momentary spike and then also after-hour spikes to do this. So literally, you can kind of avoid the 8-to-5 scenario where these spikes might occur in a less user, heavy user time period uh, during business hours. So I think there's some inherent possibilities with scheduled tasks that might help out 
uh, people that are concerned about this, which is kind of uh, uh, why this is an interesting subject for us, because it's exactly how we use LogMD. And I think there's a lot of options for people to consider um, doing these kinds of things with scheduled tasks that might might benefit um, and avoid. Now, with a scheduled task, you could have a memory leak in uh, not-so-well-written software. And, of course, when that thing kicks off, it has a it has a memory leak, and then when it when it dies, uh, that memory gets wiped by the operating system, so it's not that big of a deal. In theory. Right. If you have a service that's running all the time, that memory leak could add up over time and chew up more and more memory. And then if you're not watching, um, your system could come to a yep. crawl. And I have definitely experienced this with uh, a very a, a myriad of things, right? It's it's general software problem in, in Right, this is how the application people evaluate stuff. Well, how's the memory uses? Well, you know, Java. This was a big problem. Java. We have a Java JVM going crazy, right? And, and the developers have to get back to it. And and so these conditions are definitely something that the developer sides have to worry about in just their application space. Now, imagine now adding that condition of slow creep of an application using up memory, and a security tool goes off and eats the rest, and the box all of a sudden crashes where it 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 sort of creeped along before with you know whatever remediation and or uh, maintenance that they did or the natural rebooting of the system kind of flushed some of these issues that suddenly are adding these kinds of things to it. Yeah. Well, the, the benefit of a, of a service and agent and service are kind of synonymous when it comes to a window system. Um, agents usually are services. Yeah. I'm going right? to just for ease of explanation with this conversation is I'm going to say an agent is something that gets started and stay started upon the Windows starting, right? However it's loaded, whether it's a service, whether it's an auto-run, taskbar, you know, all these things, if it's running all the time, then I'm going to call it a service because that that's my simple definition to indicate a service and not a service, right? If I take a binary and I run it once, like we do with LogMD, we harvest the logs, it stops when it's done, end of story. Yeah, it may have a spike for a minute when it's querying the registry or reading the disk for 15 minutes to an hour. Um, like, for example, there was a conversation we had with some guys at a uh, a conference where they work for an MSP of a very large web hosting provider, and the sheer volume size of their websites would not allow them to scan, because that was what they were talk- they were interested in, is how can I go look within these websites for bad binaries that might have been placed there, but we're talking terabytes of data. Holy moly. Um, if you were to do a scan on that, you, you would bring the system, not to mention, you know, all these web servers on this big platform. You would, you would definitely impact it by doing a simple disk scan looking for, you know, rogue or new binaries, for example. So, yeah, there's all kinds of conditions we have to take into account when we're trying to do security. And we have to understand uh, those impacts uh, when we're doing these or want to do these kinds of tasks. But the benefit of an agent is it's looking real time at things. You can't do that with a scheduled task. Correct. And that's why a lot of EDRs, antivirus and things like that, they have to run as an agent yeah. to look at these things kicking off real time. Yeah, you heard it here first. I, I think real time is way overrated. And I can give you some examples of, of that. Real time. Does do does security have to be real time? So here's an example of, of real time that I, I, I think it's overrated. Don't get me wrong. I would love to have it all the time and everybody should want to strive for it. But. Um, here's how we reacted to uh, the Chinese. Now, we have tools. They were all running. They did real time. We had, and again, I have a top 10 list, right? Which is kind of ironic because my top 10 list, and and I think <laughs> I think this Twitter conversation really justifies my top 10 list in a big, 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 huge way. 
because my top 10 list, uh, none of them are security tools. They are IT tools. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. All the all my top 10 list. Again, there's only three items in the top 10 list, remember? <laughs> okay. Um, so log management's number one, right? IT loves log management. Number two is is big fix or equivalent tool, something I can ask a question. Uh, LogMD would be number three, right? Because it fills a gap and allow, and I can use BigFix to push out LogMD and whatnot. So, so is LogMD not a security tool? Well, it is, but it's not an agent, right? So it's not one of these things that would be contested in the system. So okay, we dealt with the NTI group really frequently. And when they got in, and I think any big adversary or ransomware would work very similar to this unless the person's really slow at typing. When they did get in and they triggered the first alert, by the time we were able to respond to that alert within, let's say, the first hour. So we're pretty quick, right? Alert, we, there were a couple times we went to lunch. We just kind of looked at each other and went, all right, uh, we know what we're doing this afternoon. So we, even within that hour, which uh, is our time to basically respond and get everything going and start querying and, and trying to find all the pieces and parts of what they did, they had, at that point, within that hour, infected hundreds of machines. Uh, how did real-time help me here? The reality is uh, I set up Splunk alerts to go off every hour. I had big fix alerts similar to go off every hour for things that generally were zero noise, meaning I don't want them to go off unless there's something really bad happening. And this is where tuning comes into play. To me, even though something might catch real time, whatever real time is, not even Tripwire does real time. Uh, it has a sampling of 10 seconds, for example. That may be near enough real time. Um, and then by the time it writes the alert and gets the alert to the console and does all the things you tell it to do, you're probably into, you know... Um, you know, minutes at this point before the, the event trigger and then the email gets sent or the page, whatever. From my perspective, if I can get it within an hour, quite frankly, I think that's good enough for the majority of cases. And I'm sure this is going to cause a lot of people to say, what? But that's a reality because you have to take into account real time your reaction to that real time event. And you aren't going to get very far very fast within the first hour. If it's one machine, yeah, I can get it offline and boom, kill it easily within a few minutes. But if we're talking multiple systems, uh, real time's out the window. You're 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 lucky to be responding and doing things within an hour or two or three or four or the rest of the or the rest of the week or rest of the month as the case of uh, a bad attack like the WinNTI group or any other adversary. I when people say, oh, but this is more real time faster. Yeah, I you know, setting up triggers every hour to not make it overly burdensome. Again, we're worried about CPU cycles, memory cycles. Doesn't bother me all that much. The fact that I have a logging agent collecting those events, sending them to a log collector, I then have a, a query that then runs and alert triggers, and then I get an email and or page, depending on how I set it up, um, and that takes 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. I'm totally okay with that because I've dealt with the adversaries where <laughs> they've infected your whole environment in an hour. Real-time didn't help me at all. Uh, it might be a little bit overhyped in some cases that you need or want this. You may want this in a perfect world, but I think in reality, uh, if you can do something within an hour in regards to checking a system within an hour, which, you know, where are you going with this, Michael? Um, checking auto runs once an hour when you've tuned it well is a very powerful, again, the hour of the month we talked about started off with an auto run and a service install, is a very powerful thing. And again, adversaries work about as fast as you do, unless they really are good and automate and have a, I'm in now, I'm going to execute this thing and it's going to across your whole environment um, because they're really good at that. But for the most part, they work as fast as we do. So if the person's doing on hands, they go slowly and they start triggering things. So you might be able to get in front of them, cut them off. And I think that's probably good enough. Um, let's say it's a goal. It's an 80 percentile goal we should shoot for to try to get within that hour. And, and if we can eventually get to real time, great. 
Um, but I think all the real-time uh, tools in the world, unless they do prevention and block it, like Word, opening command, opening PowerShell, uh, real-time might be overrated in a lot of ways. Um, and when we get to the end of the topics, uh, it'll make more sense. Well, a, a wise man once said, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. <laughs> Yeah, right. And I, I think that holds true here. I mean, if, if you if you want less agent, you're going to have the trade off of kicking things off every hour or 15 minutes, whatnot. Yeah. So this is where uh, this conversation, I think, leads uh, something I've been promoting for years. My top 10 list is log management, your your company's own configuration management tool or equivalent. Uh, we're talking big fixtanium, GUR, uh, OS query, investigator. Uh, anything you have that can go out and query a system or all your systems for a condition. In this case, uh, again, back to the hour of the month, any new binaries in the last 24 hours show up in, in System32 that are not the known binaries that normally live there? If the answer is yes, which is one of the query alerts I had in BigFix, send me uh, an alert. Again, not really a good thing to log because sometimes these files are placed there and we did not have file auditing turned on from a logging perspective. So BigFix was our tool for that. And it was really good for that because I could craft a query. It said, this directory, any any new binary of whatever extensions I want to look for, last 24 hours, fire alert. So when the, when the Chinese got in and dropped their DLLs all over the place, Right, I had I had big fix alerts all over the place, and then uh, off the races we went. Okay, so big fix is a is a tool that you can ask all the systems the same question. Correct. You have to write that question in a in a particular language that big fix can understand, and then it knows there is a big fix agent on all the machines uh, that you have, and and so you just query every machine in your environment for this one thing, Correct. and they report back to the central console, and you get an answer within minutes or whatever if the system is up and running and connecting. Yeah, 5, 10, 15 minutes, domain controllers sometimes take a little longer because they're busy. But again, I'm utilizing an existing tool in the environment that IT is using, yep. right? Because BigFix is a software patching tool, a configuration management tool, a potential OS building tool. You can deploy desktops and whatnot with it. I didn't like it for that. It, but it was a phenomenal security tool because you had this query capability to where, and then we could take remediation action. You know, and that was another capability that we could do. We could just write a script and say, rename this file, stop the service, rename this file, delete this file, restart the service, away you go. And so it was very powerful in that aspect. But this is the point. Us as security individuals, oh, we need an agent to do our own thing. Um, and we went down that path with EDR. We, want, we looked at EDRs that potentially could be remediation tools for us or give us the window into the box to do remediation. Um, so we had it that would give us the ability to be command across all the machines without uh, engaging IT, right, to uh, be able to react faster, quicker, and, and be autonomous. And, and so we sometimes look at these tools. Oh, Carbon Black has a remote console tool, and Silo has a remote console tool. I, I really want and need that. So does BigFix, or so does SCCM in certain aspects, or so does built-in PowerShell. Uh, we're going to have a podcast about the, the PowerShell aspect here coming soon. we got some real exciting news for that scenario. So the point here is... Uh, InfoSec, I think we can look at what we already have in an IT tool suite and do really well with it. IT loves log management because they do all their applications and, and OS and firewalls and all that. And we can seriously use logging, obviously. <laughs> We're well known for that with all the cheat sheets and all that. Um, it is the one thing that caught the Chinese. Our our queries, our log queries are the thing that caught them um, big time. It really told us everything we needed to know. Combine that with Big Fix, and that was by far 
the only thing uh, that really consistently caught the Chinese when they got in. You know, again, Login B didn't exist at the time, so that was my top ten list. <laughs> Two. And, you know, three through ten were blank and still are. Four through ten are blank. I've added big picks. Uh, we're going to have a fourth item here added pretty shortly, so I'm, I'm slowly building a better top ten list. We're going to be up to four uh, here soon. Or maybe you just replace one with another. Yeah, so I think there are options to do a lot of what we do and I think what I just mentioned covers into the uh, last point we want to leave uh, the podcast with when we get there. But there are options. And scheduling tasks to do checks like looking for auto runs, like looking for WMI payloads, um, checking the SHRM database, whatever, um, these, I think, are more potentially palatable to the IT folks um, instead of doing agents. Um, I think we can accomplish quite a bit. If not, I, I believe logging can be crafted to exceed that of EDR. No prevention, unless you create a bunch of triggers that then launch Python scripts and go do their thing. But warning, right? You have to be really good doing automation. And automation's now trickling into log management, so that's another potential orchestration and all that. Yeah, I think there's options for our industry to rethink this area of agent bloat and all that and to exploit and utilize the tools that IT has already put on the boxes, has been using, already likes, and we're just going to expand upon those. And, and that's kind of the, the main point here. And to expand upon that, stuff that's already built into the operating system where you can utilize as well. Things like PowerShell. Yeah. Things like PowerShell. We're going to cover that uh, verbatim here in an upcoming podcast. I think you guys are really going to like uh, what we're doing there. Uh, yeah. A leader so there. The, I guess the point is. So, yeah, think about agents. Whatever endpoint solution you choose, make it easy, simple. A set to, I guess, forget about for IT, right? Set to forget. You're like AV's kind of set and forget, right? Yeah, you have to decide what it is you want from a prevention solution. Now, you may choose to go down the ecosystem like this whole thing started with CrowdStrike. You may decide that CrowdStrike is going to be my end-all product. It's going to be my 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 next-gen AV. It's going to be my EDR. It's going to be my hunting tool, whatever. And that's fine. You can take that direction, and, and then you're going to be struggling with what uh, Richard pointed out, where... 300,000 or larger environments who can afford all these huge ecosystems. And what I mean by ecosystems is the fire eyes, the crowd strikes, uh, you know, the things that have multiple solutions, carbon blacks, where they have all kinds of capabilities, right? Uh, even all the, the semantics and, and McAfee's of the world that have, that have these, you know, uh, one thing does 30. But what's wrong with that? Uh, nothing, RSA, all those. Uh, not nothing, but I think you're going to be in a challenge, like Richard pointed out, it's going to be difficult the larger you are, and I'm going to totally agree with them. I do believe in the more you add to machines, the, the potential for contention, uh, system resource utilization. I mean, holy moly, boot up times. <laughs> you know, depending on what these agents do when the system starts up, this takes a you while. Know, okay. I got to go check out and download the latest this, that, and the other thing. I got to. So I have this company laptop <laughs> and it has all this stuff on it, right? So I boot it up. And then it takes so long to boot, I'm, I, I, I just can't sit there and wait. I, I have to be doing something, right? I can't just wait there for 10 minutes for this thing to boot. So I'm doing something else, right? And I get, I get focused on what I'm doing, as, as always. And I'm like, damn it. Okay, so it's already booted. You know, it's probably 30 <laughs> minutes to an hour later. It's booted. It's, it's gone. Okay. Got now i got to log in, yeah. right? So I put my smart card in there and I type in my pin and all that. And then, and then it's sitting there and, and, it, and it's loading. And so then I'm, and then I'm going to my, I'm, I'm thinking, why did I need to boot this machine up in the first place? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you I, I've already forgotten what I was going to do 
with with this company laptop, which pretty much only gets email and and goes to the company you know website, whatever. And and I'm trying to think, yeah. okay, well, well, if I needed to do one of those two actions, which one was it? And what you know, this is user impact that Richard's talking about, right? And also, I don't have this problem because I leave mine on all the time. Well. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's a ninja tip. But but you leave it on all the time, but it's only in a single location. So again, there are yes. no solutions, only trade-offs. No. Um only trade-offs. So yes, the the impact is there and and this goes back to the um the agent versus scheduled task. If you if you're running an agent, there's there's some switching going on, right? Because your your processor can only run well, just to simplify things, one process your um, chip can only run task one task, launched. one thing at a time. So, so it has to save all of the data from one process and load all the data from other another process. And this is how the human brain works. I'm sitting here doing other things, and then I have to switch and I have to go back. So I'm losing productivity. If you interrupt someone who's in deep thought, it's going to take them five, ten, fifteen minutes to get back to where they were when you interrupted them. So there are no thirty-second conversations, really. And that's why um, perhaps a scheduled task is a, a better option in, in a lot of cases, right, than an agent. Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a very viable option. But also note that by default, Windows will uh, prioritize scheduled tasks uh, lower than if you ran it from, let's say, the console. So you get a win by this thing taking less resources by running for 5, 10, 15 minutes Maybe it's an hour-long task you run once a day. And so there's there's the ability to accept that, or you can, um, again, we'll cover that in other podcasts with the PowerShell stuff, because we've determined this as well, and we have a way around it. But you can actually prioritize up your scheduled tasks if you want this thing to, to work faster. But even Windows, by default, when you create a scheduled task, will prioritize down its resource. So there's an advantage there over a service, and again, services can be programmed uh, accordingly right. as well, etc. I think one of the EDR people told us it never uses more than two percent of the of the CPU. It's not just CPU, right? Memory leak will kill that, you. That goes on the switching, uh, right? So it'll it'll switch less often with lower priority, right? That's that's Correct. how it works. And we notice this when we're running some tasks like log collections and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you have some options, I think. And I think uh, the point of of all this is you might need to rethink or as a part of rethinking in the future the strategy because maybe your pilots and your testing over a week or two or three a month uh, six months a year however long you went through your testing and and rollout that you found it worked for a while and suddenly a big update just caused havoc uh well what am i going to do now i'm married to the solution well are you and maybe you accept that this didn't work as well as you wanted and you take a step back and you say is there another way i can kind of accomplish this going back to your point you know, set and forget prevention tools are really cool, especially if they work well. Um, do you really need it to do all these other things? And, and again, maybe maybe you install three agents to get those things done. Yeah. Um, if it works together, great. But uh, you, maybe you can do it another way. Maybe you can use log management. Maybe you can use configuration management. Maybe you can use scheduled tasks uh, to accomplish a lot of the same capabilities or built-in tools like, like PowerShell. Again, when, uh, when was it Vista came out? Um, Windows upgraded their logging significantly with uh, Process Create. Huge improvement. Right? Yeah, huge improvement. So I think it had eight items, ten items before. Now it's got 30, 40 items. It checks for There us. were a lot of products that were built specifically for that that were used prior to Vista. Yep. Windows came up with their own 
uh, process create log and allowed people to utilize that instead of these other tools, right? Yep. And so now these, uh, obviously these other tools upgraded the capabilities, but that was a huge win for anyone who knew about that. And again, that's how, that's how you caught the win NTI group. Yep. Process create. I mean, that was a big. Yeah. Potentially for a fraction of the cost of an ecosystem EDR stuff, you could take what you already have, or if you want to do log management and say, we're really going to exploit log management into, into the next, the next generation of logging and use that as your EDR. And then uh, again, re- work on detection and response faster, and make that part of your remediation. And just say we're gonna we're gonna detect these faster. We're gonna get these workstations reimaged quicker. We're gonna have more data if something big and bad happens, like a win NTI or an adversary breakout. I think there's some options for small, medium, and even enterprises to look at this differently and say, what else could we do and get a lot of this uh, same capability and cut back on this potential agent yeah. load? If you're experiencing it and you want to take a redirection. Um, look at these other I think options. what we're trying to say is take a step back, look at what your capabilities are now. Maybe an agent for everything is not desirable. Maybe fill in certain gaps with other tools. Or maybe the tools that you have overlap in such a way that you can downsize them or take away some capabilities and, and utilize other things in place of those capabilities. Like you said, yeah. maybe maybe you don't need three agents for the same tool. Maybe you can get by with one figure out how to do that. Yeah, Richard pointed out that lots of them only had 10% usage, right? So that means if they had 20 features, you're using two. And maybe between 10 solutions, you can get it down to five or something. Right. I don't know. But but yeah, there are options here if you understand uh, what you're trying to accomplish. And, uh, and maybe you don't go down the whole EDR slash threat hunting with one of these big multi-agent or multiple solutions. Maybe you say, all right, we're just going to use a, a next-gen AV product and we're going to do the rest through uh, our configuration management or other tools and log management, and we can accomplish quite a bit. And, and the prevention you get, you know, again, you're trying to get right the 80-20 rule. Well, all right, now the shout-out to Devin Kerr, the 76-24 rule, <laughs> where uh, you're trying to do as much as you can, but we all must accept prevention doesn't work. It's not the end-all be all because again whitelisting application whitelisting though is awesome at reducing your your exposure um just watch one of casey smith's talks where he shows you how to bypass all these uh application whitelist bypass tools with built-in utilities right um it may cover all these prevention things you want to do and it is a consideration as much as you can prevent right it's a funnel every time you can add more to the funnel and funnel it down funnel it down is always good but be be aware of all these potential agents you might have to add to do it and uh you're really targeting or shooting for that 76% or 80-20 rule. And uh, now you've got this gap of 20% or 24%. And uh, and what do you do here? And and I think that's that's a, a big takeaway uh, of this uh, podcast, which is, Kermel, please go for it. You tell them what the... Focus on detection and threat hunting using the tools. Which may be agentless, right? Important point. Yes. Um, which is going to lead into another podcast. So we're, we're throwing you some serious teasers without telling you anything. Oh, no. Um, but let's just say uh, with log management and um, built-in PowerShell, I think you can threat hunt as good or better than uh, you can do with any of these big-ass uh, EDR solutions. Uh, equal to or better or quicker or more effective. And less agents because you're using something you might already have. Right. And if you use less agents or you're able to get rid of some expensive tools, that's that's a win, not only 
for your IT department, but for your management as well. Another thing that this has come up a couple times too, uh, people try to stick all these agents onto the hardware they have. I think if you're going down that, you know, I'm going to now, I got all this budget, we're really not going to let this happen to us again, and we're going to buy all these additional tools, you might have forgotten to upgrade the CPU and put SSDs in your laptops and put more memory in your laptops, which also contributes to this agent bloat and performance issues that a lot of us see, that the, the systems that are deployed aren't powerful enough for all the things you're asking it to do. Um, that is another consideration if you're going to go down that path. Um, think about more power. You might literally pilot a lot more power. Yes, it'll cost you more money, but you're talking about production of lots of individuals, and if you can keep them more productive, you'll save that money um, by spending it on more hardware. Oh, sure. Countless times seen uh, solutions get bought and paid for, but then there's other costs to that. And and, and those other costs might be more uh, modern equipment to run them, right? Because the productivity loss, but other things might be people costs as well, infrastructure costs, things like yep. that. All right, uh, is that a wrap? I think it's a wrap. So focus more on detection and threat hunting with what you got. Try not to go too crazy on the on the services and and agents. Consider there are other alternatives and ways to do it, and be very very good at it. And uh, and yeah, um, it's something to think about because. Uh, as you, as you work your way up in your career, you are going to get into bigger and bigger organizations potentially, and this is going to be uh, something you're going to come up against. And, and don't be afraid to think outside the box and and, and um, possibly consider what we've talked here about as another approach. All right. So that concludes our monthly BDIR podcast. You can follow Michael on Twitter at Hacker Hurricane, and you can follow me at Betterpone, B-O-E-T-T-C-H-E-R-P-W-N-E-D, or you can go to our website, log-md.com. Uh, get the show notes there, as well as uh, BDIR podcasts, uh, something, something, whatever, whatever. And um, stay tuned for the next podcast next month. Uh, it's going to be a doozy. Yeah. All right. Upcoming training, too. Let's uh, mention, uh, I'll do, be doing some training at HUSECCON uh, mid-April. Uh, we're going to do a one-day attack, uh, MITRE ATT&CK framework uh, training, uh, how to kind of practically apply it, where to start with it, what it is, where to start with it. Uh, that's one day, HUSECCON, and uh, you can get that info on Malware Archaeology as well, the links to the websites. And also a two-day Malware Discovery training up at B-Sides, Oklahoma, up in Tulsa. Um, and so check those out and uh, hopefully see you there. Really good costs when we do it with the B-Sides, so uh, well worth the uh, money and trip to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, good value there for the money. Uh, learn all about this uh, logging and detection and threat hunting and incident response, all that stuff. Good course. Yep. Uh, okay. How to find malware. Bye-bye. <laughs>